you know that the Beatles never existed? They were a fake band stashed by a revolving cast of identical actors. Reed, did you know that rocks are actually soft, but they tense up when you're about to touch them? The entire universe and all your memories were created just last Thursday. Reed, I don't know if you heard this, but Humpty Dumpty, he didn't actually fall off the wall. He was pushed. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have a little bit of fun along the way. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Chris Boyer. You can find him online at Chris Boyer on Twitter. ChristopherBoyer.com is his website uh, where he writes about his uh, days and weeks uh, working with hospitals. Chris, how's it going? Pretty good, Reed. Nice to nice to be here today. On the other side of the microphone, that's Reed Smith. Reed is also a digital marketing specialist and social media expert, and he is online at Reed Smith through Twitter, Snapchat, all of those. You can find him on LinkedIn as well, and his website is socialhealthinstitute.com, where he's got a lot of great white papers and other things around digital marketing and the impact on our industry. This episode of Touchpoint is brought to you by one of our sponsors, Transparently. Transparently is the nation's fastest growing platform for gathering and publishing physician star ratings and reviews. You can visit Transparently.com to learn why the country's most innovative health systems are choosing them to power a better digital patient experience. Again, to learn more, visit them online at Transparently.com. So, Reed, I'm excited about today's conversation. Absolutely. One that we, um, we at least claim to know a lot about. So, we'll, <laughs> we'll see what everybody else thinks. Well, we claim we know a lot about social media. And I know we've done a podcast before about social media. And people who've known us over the last decade heard us speak about our thoughts around this. But today's mm-hmm. topic is a little bit different than most of the stuff that we've talked about before. Before, we've talked about a lot about communications, marketing, how to use it for brand, in, brand engagement, uh, maybe community engagement, patient acquisition strategies, all of these different things. But today, we're going to take a different tact on social. We're going to look at how social is used to mm-hmm. understand overall health, health trends, health concerns, and you know potentially... It, using social as part of the care pathway. So not advertising. Mm, advertising may be part of this, but not necessarily advertising. You know, a lot of this that we'll talk about is probably the reason to be active and to have a social media strategy, or let me reverse that, have social as part of your strategy. That's right. Let's take a step back here for a second. I know that a lot of people talk about social media and, and, and how people use social media in many different ways. But what's becoming more and more obvious is that most of these social platforms, we're talking about the bigger platforms that are out there, the Facebooks, the Twitters, even uh, Pinterest or Snapchat, people are starting to share more information 
with their friends about their health. Yeah, I mean, again, you, you do see that on the primary platforms and, and it does give you a good uh, vehicle for that. You know, Facebook probably be the most common. People are setting up pages based around their specific, um, you know, condition or illness or, you know, whatever it may be, their health journey. Um, and so they're even creating instances outside of their personal accounts you know, where they've got a child in the NICU, for example, or something like that, where people can connect, uh, where they can share updates, you know, and you don't have to necessarily be their friend, so to speak. And so those may be, you know, when we think about it, and we can do a whole nother episode around patient online patient groups, which we probably will. When we think about that, I always think it was like maybe six or seven years ago, Reed, when Patients Like Me came out, if you remember mm. that website. Mm-hmm. And we're really mm-hmm. excited. And, and there, we knew that there were these online community groups that are dedicated around particular disease states or what have you to allow t- the patients to empower themselves by talking to one another online. And that's something that's not new. But what we're finding is more and more is is that people are also starting to share this information outside of these closed groups. They're just sharing it with their friends and family. Maybe they're talking about side effects about their drugs. Maybe they're talking about just how they're generally feeling. This is becoming part of sort of the general zeitgeist, so to speak, of social media that's out there and mm-hmm. people talking to one another. Yeah. And they're doing this openly, transparently. Yeah. And I think some of that is, you know, we've probably, as, as individuals, we've done this historically. Social media and, and some of these other web-based technologies are just a way that we can reach more people. You know, it's just it's just a vehicle or a mechanism. And so... You know, the idea that, you know, the higher acuity or the more, you know, unique your condition is, uh, the harder it's going to be to find somebody in your community, at your church, at your school, at your work, you know, whatever it may be that can uh, empathize with you. And so these types of mechanisms now allow for that and allow you to reach a lot more people and potentially find some other opportunities that maybe you you didn't realize existed. Could be clinical trials, could be home remedies, you know, I don't know, uh, all kinds of different stuff. What else is interesting is that as more and more hospitals and health systems and and other caregivers are becoming more actively involved in social media and they're publishing more health information, it's almost stirring up that conversation organically, or in some cases, like I said, you know, with advertising inorganically, like through paid advertising, but really causing people to start to talk more about health in general. And they're using these social platforms, the very platforms that we're publishing this content on. So, you know, Pew Internet has done a study recently about how people are talking about healthcare and how they're perceiving healthcare and how the impact of all of this social content around health and healthcare is shifting the way that we're perceiving health. We're, we're feeling that exercising and eating healthier has a much greater impact on your overall health than it did maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago. That's the feeling of people and part, and they're attributing that Pew is to the way we're talking about it on social channels. That is interesting. Uh, Of course, you know, there's also a lot of conflict, so to speak, because sometimes there's competing viewpoints about particular things. For example, vaccines, right? That's a great Mm -hmm. one we can always pick on. But in the social channels, a lot of people are talking about the pros and cons of vaccine, and that's contributing to the public viewpoint and the public debate now 
on how we perceive vaccination. Hopefully we're getting to a place um, where just because it's on the internet does not mean that it's true. And that's where we run into some of the downfalls of this, which is anybody can be an expert. You know, anybody can post anything they want. So that's where, you know, a lot of the conflicting information that you're talking about is probably coming from. But, you know, it does give people the opportunity to talk about their experience, uh, their opportunities, what they found, didn't find, what they were told, were not told. And so that naturally aligns with many of the things that we've talked about as well, about how it's almost imperative now for physicians and caregivers, uh, professional caregivers, to to become part of that public discourse on social channels and maybe help to shift and guide that. Hospitals can do that. Doctors, too. Dr. You know, Dr. V. Brian Vardabidian talks a lot about the public profile of the physician. As more and more physicians and nurses get into this conversation on these social channels and they're learning how to use these social channels to be better, what it's basically doing is it's creating a lot of conversation and dialogue around healthcare on social media. And whether that's good or bad, what ultimately is is the end result here is that social media is becoming platforms for conversations around health. Yeah. Uh, other things too, don't get me wrong, but that's a big topic. So naturally, coming full circle, now that we've created this sort of platform where all this health conversation is being talked about, now we want to talk a little bit about how organizations that are starting to use this conversation in different and new ways, not just to create communications and better engagement with their communities, but now they're starting to use this in a little bit of a, of a different way as a way to potentially get information from these social platforms. You know, we've talked a lot about patient growth over several different episodes, probably, you know, through an advertising mechanisms and things like that. And this, this maybe doesn't apply to everybody, but, you know, using social media for, for clinical trial recruitment, a little bit of a different type of patient growth. You know, something very specific, very specific population, a little bit of a different viewpoint and outcome in mind. And this could be hospitals and clinical researchers. It could be pharmaceutical companies. It could be even medical device companies. What they're doing is they're using these social channels to help identify and find the people that potentially could be impacted by their product or their trial. And they're reaching out to them and um, either overtly by connecting with them directly or advertising to put relevant ads in front of them to help bring them back in into a clinical Mm -hmm. trial using social targeted advertising as a way to potentially help people. Yeah, for social good. Again, you know, there's many service lines and some folks do not have clinical trial applications at their organizations. And that's that's understandable. But this, this is an interesting way to start looking at those public dialogues, those public conversations that are out there. You know, how people are using these things to provide a, a resource that they probably or maybe didn't know about. About five or six years ago when I was working in a hospital system, I remember we were talking about using social media for clinical trials. And the IRB didn't even have guidelines for that. They thought social was like kind of hands off. Mm-hmm. But now it's kind of flipped entirely. They, the National Institute of Health has put out guidance regarding using social media as a way to bring people into clinical trials. It's become part of their outreach now. Yeah, I, I think that just shows the, uh, the maturing of these platforms. It, it's hard to ignore the utilization rates, especially of something like Facebook. And then with the targeting capabilities, the demographics that are in there as part 
part of those targeting capabilities, uh, it just makes too much sense. And, uh, you know, I think what they're realizing is that, you know, organizations are going to use these. There's a real reason to use these. There's a real way to help people. And that's something they needed to address, and they did. Much better than the old way, which is put flyers in the physician's office, right? Right. Right. Still probably still probably useful, uh, but you know, this way you've got a, a better better opportunity to reach some folks that you would normally uh, otherwise reach. So I think the application of clinical trial recruitment is a really interesting one to show the benefits of social. Another one is around population health. You want to talk a little bit about that? You know, much like clinical trials, you know, this is not something that, you know, we initially were using social media for, maybe still are not using social media for to really any extent. But as we see, social media has been an influence uh, for, you know, change with individuals, with communities, you know, making it easier for larger numbers of people to, you know, share information and things like that. It has the strength to actually impact population health. The platforms itself are set up for that sort of two-way dialogue and allowing for that interaction between people to share information. That has, it's like a double-edged sword. If used for the good, it works really well. If you could facilitate sort of that mutual dialogue between the people that are talking about their health and you as an established health company or hospital or what have you, that's a good thing. But on the flip side of that is, as we talked about, that also anyone could be the expert on social and could potentially take this you know off the rails a little bit yeah they they can I, I think the thing about social is that um, you know while most population health you know, has probably been a one-way dialogue historically speaking because we were using traditional channels to you know help push some of that stuff out uh, at least online you know now community events that's a whole different thing you know now we're able to move support groups uh, different types of education into these these environments that allow people to participate not just consume. And we see organizations like big established organizations like, you know, we're involved with the Mayo Clinic. So I use that as an example. Often we hear about these these now international patient groups that connected through social and are now being pulled together into uh, some more monitored and collective groups where they can actually actively talk about their rare disease states. They could talk to one another. They're facilitating conversations and for support purposes. I think all of that shows that the public health benefits of social media far outweigh some of the risks that might be associated with that. But again, this is not easy, right, Reed? We're going to have to spend time and make a commitment to using these tools the right way. The big asterisk around all of this is that we don't own any of these platforms. So we have no idea what you know Facebook's going to do tomorrow. Right. And so we're kind of left dealing with or using the tools as they currently sit. And as they mature and morph in their use cases and things like that, you've got to take into account that we have to use these as best we can and that a certain feature may not be available next week uh, or new features may be available next week. And so this isn't just kind of a, you know, set it up and walk away kind of a thing. You've got to be, you know, actively participating, actively using these platforms, you know, to understand, you know, how they're going to work. You know, the advertising piece is the advertising piece. So even on the clinical trial side, you know, there's probably always going to be a way to try to recruit using some of these some of these platforms. Mm-hmm. But as we're talking about population health, that's a little bit of a different different animal. Mm-hmm. And we've got to understand that we can't sometimes completely control 
a privacy component, for example, or, you know, the dissemination of misinformation or, you know, something like that. You know, we can, we can do the best we can, but it's always going to be out there and it's not something we can wholly control. It's a really good point, Reed. Really good point. And so that's something that we keep in mind. And we're going to, in just a minute, talk about how one particular platform in general is taking a stand for that, and potentially in support of what we're trying to accomplish, what we're talking about here. But yeah. before we do that, I want to talk about one other application of social media that really is uh, sort of the, the thrust of the conversation we have later with our expert later on in this podcast. But using social media as a public health surveillance tool. Mm, surveillance. I know nice. that this sounds really nice, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, many years ago, we heard about how Google can start to predict where there might be flu outbreaks by what people are searching for on Google or, you know, those sorts of that sort of application. In a similar sense, social media has the ability to be maybe a pre- predictor of potential social health impacts or social health trends. Yeah, and I think this all just goes back to the simple fact that the more information that resides in one location, the more powerful it becomes. So that's exactly what you just said on the Google front, and that's exactly what we're seeing with a lot of the social platforms, especially something like Facebook, that we tell so much about ourselves. Yeah, to one another. And what's even interesting is now we're starting to use hashtags. And what's cool about that is that some of the hashtags that are being used, you know, are around particular disease states. You know, I'm a diabetic, so tagging hashtag diabetes if I'm talking about my disease, or maybe I'm sharing some kind of status update. I just saw yesterday someone posted something about their their insulin pump, and they put on Facebook and they put a hashtag diabetes. The intention, just the purposeful use of that hashtag, indicates we want others to see this and share this in a conversation. Well, the potential upside of that is if you're an organization that's curious about a number of different things, you can actually use hashtags now as a way to search for what the conversation is around that disease or that drug or whatever it may be. Yeah, the conversation and the influencers, you know, who's really carrying the weight in these conversations. So when you do look to disseminate information or maybe squash some misinformation, you know, you've got you've got an avenue potentially uh, to reach out or go down, you know, a certain path. To look where those influencers are and, and actually try to maybe if, if the conversation is going the right way or to, to continue to amplify that. But if it's going the wrong way, like, for example, you know, all the measles outbreaks that were happening in Brooklyn a couple of years ago in a very affluent part of the country, right, in, in Brooklyn, to help to shift that and to, to change the conversation in, the, in those areas to, for public health purposes. Well, it's just such a complex idea and, and topic that, again, I, I think this all goes back to uh, something that just keeps coming to mind is, you know, something we saw very early on in social media, which was let the intern do it, you know, hire somebody young because they are the ones that quote unquote understand social media. These are some pretty weighty topics, you know, relative to clinical trials, population health, being predictive around um, those types of things or health observances and and whatnot. This is something that that really needs to take um, a pretty forward place in, in, you know, in our daily utilization and, and time online. Yeah, not only can this has to be handled by someone that has a background in how to manage these conversations and and participate with people that are maybe healthcare professionals 
professionals, but also how to respond to it in an appropriate way. Because the flip side of this, as you, as we all know, the other side of this coin is that creepiness of being able to use these social platforms now as a way to get this health information, to target the right people, to start to shift the population health in the right way. There is an ethical side of this conversation that we have to talk about. It's important to understand, you know, what this really means, you know, the amount of information you're able to gather, what you're able to uh, determine about your community, about uh, your employees, even Mm -hmm. your physicians, it's uh, it's a real responsibility, that's for sure. And it's not easily addressed. And having that intern or that person fresh out of college with a communications degree, managing your social media alone is probably not the best course of action if you want to start undertaking some of these more sophisticated approaches to using social media. But Reed, one thing I have to, I we, we promised this earlier in the podcast, we have to talk about is that it's not just people in the health industry that are actually being part of this conversation. There's actually a major social media platform that is actively moving into the space. I mean, let's face it, frankly, Mark Zuckerberg wants Facebook to be a platform of health. That can mean a lot of things. Let's break down some areas where we see this. I mean, he's not overtly saying that, right? Or mm-hmm. Facebook is not overtly saying that. But let's break down a little bit of some things that we do know. Okay, we all have heard of the mood manipulation experiment that they did in 2014, where they started to, people that are managing Facebook's algorithms were starting to track the mood of people and they were starting to try to shift the mood of people that were posting a lot of negative information to more of a positive mindset by sharing more happier information to them in their news feeds and when people heard about that what was the reaction what was your reaction when you heard that reed i don't know that i want anybody following along that close and quite honestly i don't know that i'm following along that close with myself um, you know, someone else keeping up with how many things I've posted in a row that fall into a certain category, regardless of what that category is, you know, you could argue like, oh, well, that that's cool. You know, if I post a lot of things about cars, you know, I'd like to see more things about cars, you know, whatever. That's fine. You start getting into health, you start getting into emotions, you know, things like anxiety, depression, stuff like that. That starts hitting a weird, a weird chord with people, I think. It really does. It does. And the fact that these social platforms can influence how people felt by posting more negative messages, negative posts to their feed, it they started to end up posting more negative comments. And if they did it in a positive way, they started posting more positive comments. And what's interesting about that is what came out of Facebook? What was one of the major things that came out of Facebook after that experiment occurred? Well, it was these emotional responses now to post. Mm-hmm. Now you can smile like a post or you can be mm-hmm. angry about a post. Or why, are, why is Facebook allowing you to react in such a way? So they could determine, obviously, what, based on what you are posting, how you feel theoretically. Well, now they can determine how you feel about what everybody else is posting. And so, you know, they're getting both sides of the coin now. They're getting the um, initial 
viewpoint and they're also getting your reaction so you know it's very interesting i don't know time time will tell i guess on really what that means i think you know they've said this numerous times you know facebook is a data company they're not a social network they're, they're getting to a place where the data they have and can provide and ultimately sell is more valuable than any of the insights we've ever had before i'm not trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist here reed but Facebook also made changes in their ad guidelines. And some of the things that they made in their ad guidelines was they're not letting negative images, negative posts, the way you phrase your words, they're being very, very cautious about all the things you're doing in your advertising as well. And I remember way back, we were talking about there were some people that respond well to fear-based advertising, right? And they're going to respond to that. Facebook won't allow that anymore. Their guidelines now are very much in a positive sense. It lends me to believe that Facebook wants to be a happy place. It doesn't want to, it doesn't want to barter in negative negativity. <laughs> that's interesting. I don't know how you do that necessarily over time, but I think that's an interesting conclusion. Because obviously you know, they need people to continue to log on and they need people to continue to log on at alarming rates so they can sell more advertising or they can sell more data or whatever it is so they can monetize the platform so people have to want to be there that's true they want to be there so why make it a a place rife in negativity let's make it a place where you get things that make you feel better are we going to get to a place where like for whatever reason like it just like wow it won't allow me to post anything political well (laughs) funny that you mentioned that Right? Because now there's all of this discussion around how Facebook is trying to tackle fake news and how to allow users of the platform to start to be part of the conversation to help suss out what's good or bad. One of the things that they changed, and this doesn't have anything to do with ads, and unfortunately they changed it because I thought it was very useful in our world at least, was when you posted a link. You used to be able to edit Oh, the image, the title, the description, all the components of that link preview. Mm -hmm. And now you can't. It's just what it is. And so uh, they did that because I think people were, well, creating link bait. You know, I mean, they they were posting a link and then editing the title and those types of things to probably not what the author originally said it to be to get people to click on it. So that this is one of the ways they're combating that. And so this is just, it's funny, just as these platforms morph, as people's behaviors morph, you know, the platform is going to have to morph again. Well, let me adjust my tinfoil hat just a little bit more here mm-hmm. and tell you about, and you are aware of this, that Facebook has patents that they released this year in which they want to, they indicate they want to capture your emotions, your facial expressions, and your mood. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we don't actually want to know what all <laughs> they know about us or, you know, other entities know about us. Uh, you know, I've always said, you know, people always say things like, man, I'd love to be the president for the day so I could figure out what happened or what the deal is at Area 51, you know, or something like that. My assertion's always been like, no, you don't. You don't want to know. 
Like, I don't know what the answer is. I don't have any real thoughts around that, but I can guarantee you there are things that you would find out if you were the president of the United States that you probably wished you didn't know. Some of it is not quite, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, doom and gloom here necessarily, but some of the stuff around Facebook, some of the stuff around some of these social platforms, uh, and even other sites out there, uh, I think you'd be shocked if you knew how much they know already. Well, we talk about, you know, where they they track you with your GPS, they know what you're doing. But let me tell you a little bit about this patent, read Again, I got to adjust my tinfoil hat a little bit here, but uh, it's called Systems and Methods for Dynamically Generating Emojis Based on the Image Analysis of Your Facial Features. It would capture real-time image data of your face through a selfie onto Facebook and send an emoji based on your face and gestures. (laughs) How do you feel about that? Well, at least they're not taking over our webcams. I thought that was what this was. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are in, a, in an extent. They're taking a. You're looking at your screen, and they're taking a picture of you and putting back an emoji based on how you feel. Hmm. Interesting, huh? Yeah, I'm gonna go get some tape real quick and start covering up my <laughs> webcams. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Now, come on. Now, Facebook as a company has come out openly about this. They're not doing this for nefarious purposes. They're, they're doing this actually sure. to help further the conversation around public health. But that doesn't mean that that keeps them out of trouble because, as you probably heard in 2016, in March of 2016, there was a lawsuit about Facebook illegally acquiring a patient's health information. And it actually was not only leveraged against Facebook, it was also put against the, a health system or a couple of health systems. And it was talking about the uh, connecting Facebook to the actual patient record through um, a variety of backend systems. And, and basically, it's saying that Facebook is now starting to cross that line a little bit. Now, that lawsuit never really went anywhere. But the point is here is that the public, as transparent as we are, as we learn more and more about these things, is starting to push back a little bit on that. And that's getting back to that thing that we always talk about in social media, which is the creepiness of being able to share all this information and having exposure to all this information. So at some point you have to weigh the the benefits versus the privacy concerns. You know, and I think I've told the story before, but you, you take somebody like Doug Ullman, who used to be the CEO of Livestrong. He's at Pelotonia up in uh, Ohio now and has had a three-time cancer survivor. And the first time he got it was in the in the mid-90s, when uh, you know, right after his freshman year in, in college. And the doctor told him that there's probably a dozen other people, and I may be getting these numbers wrong, but there's like a dozen other people in the U.S. that had the same thing he did. And his comment was, I would gladly give up the privacy around my condition to connect with those other dozen people. So some of it's personal, you know, some of it's going to have to be, well, you know, what do you want? You know, what is beneficial to you individually? And then quite honestly, just staying up to date abreast of whatever the the privacy changes and things like that are. I've said this a number of times, but I still, you know, wholeheartedly believe that, you know, privacy is an illusion at this point. So short of not being on all these platforms and not being on the internet, I don't know that there's really a lot you can do. 
it's incumbent upon us as health systems, as health professionals, if we're in pharmaceutical and and uh, medical device, whoever that are, we're using these social the social information now to help impact and further drive some of our our initiatives or our desires. I think that we have to remember that we're here for ultimately the public good. Sometimes mm-hmm. there may be some creepiness of that. But ultimately, if we use that data in the right way, if we if we further health in any kind of incremental way, I think that the benefit of using social media in this way is powerful. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to InfluenceHealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! Okay, in today's touch point, touch counterpoint uh, discussion, we're going to talk about something that you alluded to, Reed, er, uh, earlier on in our in our podcast, which is: Does privacy exist online anymore? Not a chance. Not a chance. There's there's no way. There's no way. And now I'm speaking to, and I assume we're talking about kind of the average online user. You know, they've got, I don't know, maybe a Facebook account, a couple of other social profiles, email, you're on the internet every day, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. No privacy. I say that there is a level of privacy that does exist. And that people, if acting responsibly, can develop a, a sense of uh, of their own sense of privacy. Now, when we talk about, I mean, clearly people know when you connect to the internet that it's you, that sort of thing. And there are ways that, you know, if you get really advanced, you can kind of spoof your address and get into the dark web. We're not talking about that. But what we're talking about is maybe the concept of privacy has evolved a little bit. Sure, you're not going to be anonymous anymore, but... You can set up your privacy settings through all the social platforms, even through Google itself. They just recently said they're not going to be looking at your email anymore to get information about you. They're not going to be looking at it anymore. (laughs) Yeah, but the point is, though, is that we're setting up that platforms today, Google, Facebook, even Amazon, is obviously wanting to know a lot about you, but they're giving you the tools that you need to maintain a sense of privacy. So I would argue that privacy does exist. But to see, that's the that's the exact point. And we're talking about the average user. You know, we're not talking about you know somebody that looks over their shoulder all the time in life. We're talking about the average user. And the the problem is these platforms are going to give you the tools. 
So we can have a conversation about the tools themselves, but they're giving them to you, which means you have to then go do it and you're not going to. No, no one's going to do that. And then, you know, somebody tells you, you have to do this, that, or the other, and you might go and do that. And then shortly after that is followed up by some ridiculous Facebook post about paste this on your wall so they can't use your photos or something. That's not a thing. And so you end up falling for all these like weird gimmicky things after a while. It's kind of like, it's kind of like identity theft. It's like you never really think it's going to happen to you so you don't do anything about it. Well, oh, come on, Reed. I think you're being a little bit alarmist now. Now you're the one that's the conspiracy theorist. Please. <laughs> People can put, set up their privacy settings. Facebook actually makes it very easy for you now to set up your Facebook privacy settings. It kind of guides you through what you need to do. It tells you clearly if you click this button what it means, what it doesn't mean. Google is doing that as well. Look, privacy does to a certain extent. Again, not that privacy of you're completely anonymous, because clearly you can't be. You have to be a, a real true life person to be participating on these social channels. But that that sense of privacy does exist uh, on, on tools where there is an ex- expectation of privacy, right? When we get to Twitter, forget it. You're, you're in the public. People can get you. But even then you can block people. Yeah, a sense of privacy exists, not actual privacy. That's my thought. So I still think... And even if you do all the settings on Facebook, Facebook can still see it all. Yeah, but they're not going to want to know. Clearly, they want to know some information about you. I agree with you. They are a a data intelligence platform. But they're looking to really, as Google does, to de-identify that information to get a better sense of you as a persona, not as an individual. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg really cares so much that, you know, I had a donut for breakfast yesterday. That's not really the intention of what what Facebook tracking information about me. Yes, they want to know about the general behavioristics of a person my age and what they're doing, but he's not getting to me individually, and he's not allowing advertisers to come directly to me unless I explicitly give them permission to do so. Unless they're selling a donut, and then they'll serve an ad up to you. Look, on, I have to say something. Over the last week, I have posted at least seven or eight pictures about coffee, and I have yet to see a coffee ad come my way. And I did not set an anti-coffee you know, privacy setting. My privacy, I, I sense that there is privacy out there. There's enough level of privacy for me to participate in this platform. Agree to disagree. Although I still do participate on the platforms, so I'm not sure what that says about me. <laughs> Well, you're like the average user. Now we're getting to the point where our arguments are merging together at the end because, I mean, the average user, right? We do find value from this. Like you mentioned, the example you mentioned, we're giving up, we're trading the fact that, you know, we don't, we know it's not 100% transparent. If we want to be anonymous, I, I imagine that we could go to great lengths to be anonymous on the internet and we do a pretty good job. But the security of our world, we use credit cards. You and I are talking on the internet to one another. We're texting one another. Everybody knows everything about us. So I think that that whole sense of security is shifted in this day and age. Don't you? Yep. It absolutely has. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered and they're certainly not being analyzed. 
This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. What, 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 what is news? All right, we are trying something a little bit new and uh, I guess old at the same time. So what is old is new again or something, whatever, however that (laughs) thing goes. Because Chris and I do see so many news articles through the week and they may or may not have anything to do with what we want to talk about or are talking about on that week's podcast. We thought, well, let's surface a couple of articles we, we feel will be interested to those listening and uh, just touch on those and give people links to them so they can go out and search a little bit more. And then obviously they may turn into full full podcast episodes at some point. So this is the new and revised to what's news section. What article did you find this week? Well, Reed, you're going to be happy to know that I found an article about Google Glass. Google oh, Glass is back, baby, with oh, a new yeah. vision. That's a nice punny title. Particularly what they're doing is they're focusing on, they're calling it the Glass Enterprise Edition. And it's going to be updated, a better battery life. It's going to um, you know, really focus in on certain use cases. And Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, is seeing some applications of that in many different industries. They actually listed a couple of the industries in here, like Boeing, Volkswagen. They're going to be focusing mm. on manufacturing logistics. You know, the whole point here is they see a use case for Google. Google Glass. So I know that you're excited about that, right, Reed? Oh, I am thrilled. <laughs> Absolutely thrilled. No, I do think, and, and I've said this all along, you know, for the for the average user, I'm not sure, uh, or the average person, I should say, I'm not sure that they're the user for Google Glass. I think it's more industry specific. I think you think about, talking about healthcare, for example, pre-op checklists for physicians, you know, being able to look at um, or communicate with the pathology or, you know, lab department while they're in the middle of surgery uh, and bring, you know, consults in virtually when they're um, actually in the middle of surgery. I think stuff like that makes sense to me. I think the idea that like uh, just, you know, some random person, even me, is going to wear Google Glass is maybe uh, a little bit of a stretch. Well, we'll see at the next conference if you're wearing a Google Glass or not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. What's your article, Reed? Yeah, so I tracked down one, or actually came across this. It's uh, on the New York Times, and again, we'll post post a a link to it, uh, from just a few days ago. And it's about Facebook, Uh, our good friends over at Facebook that we've been talking about today. Uh, Facebook, seeking to satisfy publishers, may let them charge for articles. Uh, So basically, uh, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a little bit here, but it's the idea that publishers would be able to post content to Facebook and then charge for you to then read it. So I don't know. I don't know if this is just is a, you know, we, we have fewer and fewer people actually going and, and you see news news articles on websites now where 
you can get a couple for free, but then you have to subscribe to their digital edition. I see this as kind of an extension of that. I'm of two minds of this because I'm kind of annoyed sometimes when I click on things and it's I hit a paywall. For example, the Washington Post. I know I should subscribe to the Washington Post, but I really get most of my news from multiple different sources. And after you hit a certain threshold every month, the Washington Post yep. says, hey, you, you should pay for this. Yep. If we want to pay the article. I see the value of that. And I, and I do want to pay for good journalism. It's just I don't know where to distribute my dollars. If this is like sort of like five cents for this article, 10 cents for this article, I think I could get behind that as long as Facebook makes it easy for me to purchase those articles. And then I say that because um, with this caveat is there's no way I'm going to give Facebook my credit card number. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to your point, I, you know, the example they give in here is some sort of a some sort of a paywall, just like you mentioned. So like maybe after you read 10 New York Times articles on Facebook, you get redirected to their uh, you know subscription sign up page or, or something to that extent. So they're, they're talking about they're going to push this out as a pilot in October of this year and then maybe a little bit further in 2018 if the results are promising. But they don't talk about uh, or have not mentioned which publishers might participate in the test. So we'll see where that goes. That's what's news. Today, I am pleased to be talking to Amelia Roberts. Amelia and I got to know each other. She actually listened to one of our podcasts, and I think we connected, even though we, uh, at one point in time, we lived in the same city, because uh, I used to live in Washington, D.C. Amelia, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. How are you? Good. Glad to be here. Good, good, good. Amelia, why don't you uh, let people know that are listening in, give, a, give them a little bit of background about yourself. Hi. So, um, I... Grew up around technology, social media back when I was a teenager in that MySpace era. So as my use of <laughs> so so as I grew my use of social media and my you know general population, our use matured as well. Um, I have family members who are in business. I've always been interested in helping them with their marketing. And as I entered into the healthcare field, my use of social media changed and shifted towards. Um, you know, social media for healthcare, learning that striking up conversations uh, via social media uh, with uh, people who um, can help my patients was it was easier doing it to be quite honest via social media than it was being on the phone. One thing led to another. Solutions by Amelia is where I am. Yeah, um, we're going to link to your we're going to link in our show notes to your LinkedIn profile so people could see a little bit of your background because it sees I see that you're a certified Hootsuite professional and that you've been in this space for a very long time, probably about as long as I have. You and I connected and we started talking about a very specific, uh, I, I guess it was a study that you did. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, Stanford University MedX has an everyone included project or a research study. Um, uh, not that long ago, they had a call for submissions in 2016, um, and I submitted an idea. I was paired with um, a group that we talked about um, suicide, uh, conversations around suicide, and mm-hmm. if we could measure conversations, period. And you know, thanks to hashtags and the social analytic tool they gave us access to, we were able to measure hashtags around um, a few topics, and we were able to learn a lot. 
Okay, so you were measuring people's conversations using utilizing hashtags and specifically mm-hmm. around suicide. And this is and the intention here was to align social media conversations with potential clinical intervention. Is that the purpose of the study? Um, not so much intervention, but mm-hmm to see who was driving the conversations around suicide prevention, um, specifically, who was participating in those conversations, initiating and moving the conversation along around that topic. We feel as though when healthcare people are initiating important conversations, that others listen. And so we just wanted to see, you know, first of all, are healthcare professionals talking about it? And if so, how much is the conversation happening? What is sparking the conversation? And mm-hmm. because of the measurement tools, uh, simpler signals, we were able to see and track who initiated the conversations. We were able to learn a lot and we were able to learn that, you know, officially we all feel like we need to have more conversations, but the research showed us, yes, we do need to have more conversations around um, this topic. Mm-hmm. And we were able to see our charts were able to show spikes and we were able to see what caused those spikes. They, a lot of times they were like around conferences around a particular topic or they were around blog posts being released. So mm-hmm. we were able to see some of the things that did spark conversations around um, the topic of suicide prevention. Interesting, interesting. Now has the study been, is it concluded now and have, have the results been published? We have a blog post, I can definitely link to it, but mm-hmm. it hasn't been published in like in a peer-reviewed journal as of yet. The findings that you found, how do you feel that can be applied to healthcare in general? Well, I'm encouraged by what I am seeing in terms of how pharma is using uh, social media listening mm-hmm. tools for adverse drug reaction monitoring. Mm-hmm. There's a neat article called Social Media Screening for ADR Monitoring, Like It or Not. And it talks about how pretty much people will voice on Twitter or social media that, hey, I'm taking this drug, name of drug, and I just threw up. Or, hey, I'm taking this medication and I have a headache. People are more likely to do that and share that than they are to call the 800 number and the tiny print on the bottle or lodge an official complaint. So pharma is actually using this now to help inform their monitoring and surveillance. But the use cases for how we can listen to conversations that are happening, especially conversations around healthcare, the uses are endless. Yeah, I could see that. I certainly could. And, and I'm thinking back to kind of historically, before social was around, there wasn't really an, a way that you can kind of track your, your side effects, your adverse conditions to the medication you're taking, except by talking to your medical professional or your nurse or what have you with that direct face-to-face. And I know that at one point in time, while it's still around, websites, patient community websites have launched where people could talk about a particular disease state you know, and side effects that might might come from the medications that they're taking, like patients like me and other things like mm-hmm. that. It seems like social media is much easier for people to just kind of talk in general without having to, to sign into something or to sign up for something. I mean, the overall digital spectrum, how do you see social media playing a role with communicating between patients and uh, not only between, you know, pharma and, and people taking their drugs, but maybe even patients to their doctors and their nurses? So when it comes to providers interacting with patients via social media, That is still an area that I can't necessarily promote that Mm -hmm. we go in 
too, as far as like, you know, um, doctor patient relationships via Facebook. Now, I can't advise that, but I do know physicians who are a part of patient communities who listen to the conversations that are being had. To be quite honest, you know, there's times when studies come out that patients are aware of and that they bring to the physician's office that might in that community be a hot topic. And I do know of physicians who are part of patient communities for the social listening aspect of it purely. They're not contributing. They're not giving medical advice. They're not advising. They're just a part of that community where they are. And as professionals who are part of population health, community health, recognizing that there are communities online and that recognizing that this is where some of our patients view advice as being something that's credible. Just recognizing that I think is important, whether or not we agree with it or not. Whether a physician gives a certain advice about a certain topic related to kids' health or a mom blogger gives advice, Mm -hmm. recognizing that the patient will weigh both sets of influencers and make a decision not that we agree on, you know, listening to mom blogger or not, just being aware of what our patients might view or where they might be going for information. Um, just being aware of that, of what makes up their community pretty much, I think is important. What are your thoughts on Facebook having that sort of level of information about you? I'm not surprised. I mm-hmm. will say that Facebook has allowed you to react to posts that you see. <laughs> so they are curious about how you are feeling and there is a definitely a great potential um, there. But when you start to get into running ads, my view of it sort of opened up because mm-hmm. I see how people can learn about things that can really improve their life because Facebook does have like all this information about us. They know what we're liking. They know the associations mm-hmm. that we're following. They know of the bloggers and websites that we're going to. And they're able to allow people to um, be helped. There's a great amount of information out there that can be used in a very good way, in a very positive way. But the the flip side of that coin could be that that potentially could be also there's a negative aspect to that, isn't there? I would say that Facebook wants to be a happy place. That's why certain ads won't be approved. If there's like ads that talk about medical conditions, they're not going to show it. If there are ads that have people looking sad, it's not going to be shown that much. So um, yeah, Facebook is very selective about the content that they'll approve for ads, one, and two, how much reach certain content will have. So we've been talking a lot about Facebook, right? But there's all these other social platforms. And you were using a tool or uh, something called Simpler Signals. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm not too familiar with that. Uh, Simpler Signals um, is a data analytics tool that allowed us to search terms. Um, We use hashtags like hashtag uh, zero suicide. And we were able to see who started the conversations around that particular hashtags when there were spikes we were able to we could also you know change the dates in terms of our um, time span of like you know who has been using this hashtag over the past six months it's a platform that's built for research 
So it's a pretty robust tool. They're partnering with Stanford University, of course, and they partner with NIH, Harvard Medical School. The application here is for clinical use, looks like. I went to the website here. Is the thought that this is going to, uh, that social media is going to start to be included through clinical trial research? We've noticed that when people have conversations that are natural, conversations that are organic, conversations that don't happen under the microscope of a brightly lit lab around a group table of, you know, strangers and people watching with a notepad, we notice that people tend to talk differently. They just do when they're not being watched and it's organic and natural. And we are starting to see virtual focus groups. And there's also different barriers, other barriers that some people have about, you know, accessing um, focus groups or coming to a focus group or, you know, going to a specific location. Those are some barriers to that research being successful among certain populations. But in any case, there is a potential for tools like Simpler Signals to help or assist uh, virtual focus groups. As patients, Mm -hmm. I know that when I post things on Facebook or when I post it on Twitter or or even write a blog post, I realize that that's kind of open and accessible to people. But what are your thoughts on that, about, you know, patients and privacy of of some of the things that they're posting and and, and the application of that to the healthcare profession? Zuckerberg recently had a convention, conference, I'm not quite sure, where he gathered the online community managers of several pretty large Facebook groups. And in that conference, he mentioned a few times online patient communities. He talked about his you know, loved ones who had this strong um, connection with people of their um, Facebook community, how resources were able to be given that helped his loved one through a post-op process. Um, I personally have a few friends who've had, you know, major surgery and they got resources from that group that they brought back to their physician. And to be quite honest, from what I've seen as someone in the healthcare field, patients tend to want us to be aware that they are doing their homework, that they are doing their research um, outside of what happens inside of the office visit. The medical professional reaction to a patient bringing in research really should not be one of surprise or horror. Because if it is surprise or horror, you know, the you know, doctor says, oh no, you're in a you know, Facebook group, that's horrible. The patient may not feel comfortable bringing in other, um, more questionable research back to the doctor the next time. They might just hold on to themselves and mm-hmm. you know, leave the physician out completely. So seeing that go, not great as well. So mm-hmm. I would say that from what I've seen, um, and I'm sure there's people who have a different view, that patients want their physician to be aware of the fact that they do have a community and that their community does help them along in making um, decisions. What would you predict in you know two, three years, maybe even five years from now, how do you see social media as being part of the patient experience? So I would love to have a, um, <laughs> I would love to have a version of Facebook that's, you know, encrypted and HIPAA compliant and um, somewhere where people already are. We had a patient that, well, okay, so I work with kids who have uh, chronic illness and I work with them through their teen to college to adult years, right? Mm -hmm. So after a certain point, I, I need to call them directly. I can't necessarily call their parents and ask about what they're doing. So there's this one particular um, patient um, 
and actually it's not just one particular, it's they're teenagers. What can I say? Um, I view their health and compliance differently than they do. But mm-hmm. I asked, you know, a few of them, you know, what would help you remember to take your medication? Um, a very easy question. You know, I don't want, you know, them to grow into an adult that, you know, has a burden on the ER. I want to try to fix this now and try to support and help now. What, what can I do to help you? And they said, send me a text message. That's pretty simple, but just implementing a SMS text messaging system in a facility and an enterprise level that doesn't have one, it's not that easy, but I wish that it was. Like the, the kid that asked me to, um, to send them the text message, I would love to say, you know, I might not be able to send you the text message, but there's this secure, encrypted Snapchat-like place we can go and I can send you reminders. I would love mm. to be able to say that to that kid. That might be in my crystal ball. Yeah, I'm happy to talk to anyone who uh, wants more information. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? I am on Twitter as at RN underscore solutions, but my email is good too. Um, I don't mind giving that out. Um, Amelia at solutions by Amelia.com. Well, I recommend everybody to go follow her. We're going to, some of the things that we talked about in our, in our interview today, we'll post to our show notes and Amelia, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. I think it's really interesting. Oh, Chris, this has been absolutely fantastic. As you can see, if you follow me on Twitter for any amount of time, I love facilitating conversations. Um, that, that literally is like a hobby. So sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to it. Okay, with that music, you know we're getting near the end of our podcast. And at this point, we always give out recommendations. Reed, um, do you have a good recommendation for us this week? I do. Uh, As regular listeners of the show will know, I like different types of tools and gadgets and all that kind of good stuff. And so this week is one of my favorite brands, Klein Tools, known well by electricians. But there is a four-in-one electronics screwdriver. So you've seen the little tiny screwdrivers with the different tips and things like that. Uh, this is one that's it's simple. It's got four different tips. Uh, you don't have a bunch of other little random things to keep up with that you'll never use. Uh, it's like 10 bucks. Uh, you can buy it online. You can buy it at Home Depot. I don't know. Wherever Klein Tools are sold, we'll post a link. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's Klein Tools 4-in-1 Electronic Screwdriver. It's really handy for all kinds of little gadgets and different things you may have around your office. I am convinced, Reed, you need to launch another podcast called This Old House with Reed Smith or you know, yeah. This Old Tech Office with Reed Smith or something. Yeah, if I can make a living <laughs> doing that, I probably would. Good stuff. Well, mine is related to something to actually drink, and I'm not talking about alcohol. During the day, I am a big fan of seltzer water, and my recommendation this week is something I picked up. I've been picking up at Trader Joe's now the last couple times I've been there. It's a seltzer water called Spindrift. Spindrift mm. is a sparkling water with real fresh squeezed fruit in it. They uh, have a great, it's about, you know, they say about 8% juice in it. They have multiple different flavors. I really am a big fan of their pink grapefruit. I always tend to pick one up, have it in the fridge on a hot summer day. They have multiple different flavors. They have cucumber, lemon, raspberry, lime, and they just introduced the strawberry, which is um, looks pretty interesting. You can pick these up at your local store, or if you really want to, 
you can order this off of Amazon. Amazon has the ability to get these to you. And if you have uh, a local Amazon warehouse like we do here in Minneapolis, you might even get it the same day. We'll have to check those out. That sounds awesome. We'll put a link to it. Reed, so we kind of alluded to it a little bit, but um, we are going to be participating in an upcoming healthcare conference, the Healthcare Internet Conference. Absolutely. Back in here uh, in Austin, Texas, much like uh, the forums were back in May, same uh, same hotel. And um, it'll be great. We're going to be doing uh, some recording there, much like we did before, and uh, more to come on that. We're going to be, yeah, we're going to absolutely have a recording. We're going to set up a panel session. We're going to talk, talk to people. We don't have the exact date on lockdown yet well we know it's going to be on tuesday afternoon but we don't know the exact time but we definitely want to encourage people to go to get out to the healthcare internet conference which is on october 23rd to the 25th in austin texas we'll put a link to it but if you go to hcic.net it'll have a full breakdown this is one of the few annual conferences that we've talked about that we that we recommend people to go to uh certainly want to come there and come listen to a live recording of our podcast there you go He is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. We had a blast and we'll uh, see you next week. 